Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I've got my Bible opened up to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Looking right down there at the very end of this epistle. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Lots of Bible this morning, and so it's really important that you be following along in the Scriptures and reading all of the various passages that we'll be looking at this morning, and that's going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. As you're turning there, let me join in the welcome from earlier. What a great number we have in attendance this morning. We do have guests in our midst, and we appreciate so much your presence. I'm glad to be here after not being in this position for the last couple of weeks. It's great to be back and great to be a part of uh, the good worship that we've been involved in this morning. Appreciate the good prayer and the good songs that have been sung. And so I'm chomping at the bit to do my part on the preaching end. Let's read together in 2 Corinthians 13. As Paul concludes his letter to the saints at Corinth, he says these words, 2 Corinthians 13 and in verse 14, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I think two-thirds of that verse we're A-OK with. If somebody wants to come and they want to talk to me about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, sign me up. I love to talk about Jesus. love to talk with others about Jesus Christ. I can talk about Jesus all day long. And then that second part there, the love of the Father. God the Father. God the most dominant character all throughout the Old Testament and even through the New Testament as well. love to talk about God. I could talk about God all day long. And so two-thirds of that verse I think we are very comfortable with. Then Paul says, And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What is that about? What are we talking about there? What's the deal with that? The Holy Spirit. In fact, if someone came to me and said, I'll pay you one million dollars to talk for ten minutes about the Holy Spirit, about who He is and what He does and what He's all about, for me, I'm afraid I would probably get a very serious case of the humana, humana, humanas after about, I don't know, like two minutes trying to somehow figure out how to eke out the remaining ten minutes talking about the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't think we'd have problem at all talking for ten minutes about Jesus. And we wouldn't have really any problem at all talking for ten minutes about God the Father. But when it comes to having any kind of deep and meaningful discussion about the Holy Spirit, we struggle, don't we? In many ways, the reason we struggle is because the Holy Spirit is shrouded in uncertainty and mystery. Some of that is due to all of the false doctrine that has permeated the religious world about the Holy Spirit. And we don't want any part of that. We stay away from that as far as we possibly can, and rightfully so. Some of that is because the whole concept of a Holy Spirit, well, that just sounds a little bit spooky. Especially if you're reading from a King James Bible this morning. Because in the King James Bible, it's not the Holy Spirit, is it? It's the Holy Ghost. Ooh, what's that about? The Holy Ghost. You put all of those factors together and we're just uneasy talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, my goal this morning is to help you and to help me get comfortable with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I need you to listen very carefully for the next couple of moments because I want you to hear the fine print and I want you to understand exactly what I mean by that when I say get comfortable with the Holy Spirit. There is a sense in which we should never be comfortable with God. God must never be treated in a casual or trivial or flippant manner where we are losing our sense of reverence and awe for His glory and His power and His majesty. We don't ever want to get comfortable in that way. God is God and we are not. And we should always treat God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit with the utmost respect and devotion. And so if I say anything this morning that robs us of that reverence, then this sermon will have been just a dismal failure. But on the other hand, if this morning we could look into the Word of God and we could come to know God the Spirit better, if we could understand and appreciate and love God the Spirit more, so that we're not so awkward and unsure and unsteady about the Holy Spirit, then I think our time will have been well spent. And maybe what that means is that means that our goal this morning maybe is to just get to a place where we can talk about the Holy Spirit without getting all nervous that somebody's going to think I'm some fanatical Pentecostal. And maybe our goal this morning is to just quit ignoring the Holy Spirit. I'll be honest with you. I think that's what I've done for the majority of my Christian life. Just ignore what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes we're so uncomfortable and we're so unsure about the Holy Spirit that maybe our solution to that is, well, well, we just we just will act like He doesn't even exist. We just won't say anything about Him because at least that way we won't get it wrong. How can I, or how can any of God's people, Ignore the third person of the Godhead. We can't. And this morning, we will not. This morning, I want to put before you four vital truths that I hope will help all of us. Very simple and fundamental truths, but four vital truths that will help us be more sure about the Spirit of God, what He is doing, and what He is about. Are you ready for that? Let's just start that this morning by saying, That if you are calling the Holy Spirit an it, then you need to stop. You need to stop referring to the Holy Spirit as an it or a thing. Because what the Bible teaches is that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not some invisible, ethereal force out there as the Jehovah's Witnesses and other religious groups teach. No, the Bible repeatedly demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is a person. Notice I did not say a human, but He is a person with life and thought and character and individuality. Can I just run some passages to show you the personhood of the Holy Spirit? Start with me in Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says this in verse 8. In Galatians 6 and in verse 8, Paul says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Notice there, the Spirit has life. And in fact, this passage says that the Spirit can give life. Look in 1 Corinthians now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, we're told, knows some things. He knows some things. I'm looking in 1 Corinthians 2 in verse 10. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Notice there, the Spirit has knowledge. The Spirit has insight. And the reason for that is it's because the Spirit has a mind. Look in Romans chapter 8 now. In Romans chapter 8, look in verse 27. Lots said about the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8 and in verse 27, Paul writes, He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit has a mind with intellect and thought. Not only that, but I would tell you that the Spirit also has some other kinds of what we might refer to as sensory functions. Look in John 16, please. In John 16, this is Jesus speaking. And I hope you'll notice that in all these passages that we've read thus far, the Spirit, the person of the Spirit, is distinct from the other members of the Godhead. And I've tried to select passages that specifically identify Him as being separate and distinct from God the Father and God the Son, that He is His own person. And so in John 16, Jesus is talking. And He says in verse 13, in John 16 and in verse 13, Jesus says there, When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus says that the Spirit can hear, and He can speak. That doesn't sound like something some kind of just cloud in the sky can do, does it? That sounds like a person. And as I go back to Romans chapter 8, I see as well that the Spirit, He can lead. In Romans chapter 8, look in verse 14. In Romans chapter 8 and in verse 14, there Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The Spirit leads. Let me add to that, jump back to John again, what Jesus says in John 14. Because it is there that we learn that the Spirit can help And He can comfort, as He did with the apostles. In John 14, Jesus is preparing His disciples for His eventual departure back into heaven. And Jesus recognized that His disciples would be troubled by that. They would be fearful. They would feel alone. And so Jesus promises them, you're not going to be alone. You don't need to be fearful because John chapter 14, verse number 16. In John 14 and verse 16, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper, Your translations might say comforter. To be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. As we're talking about all of this, maybe it's also worth pointing out that you and I, we can do stuff to the Spirit. Did you know that? Look in Ephesians 4, for example. In Ephesians chapter 4, I'm reading here in verse 30. In Ephesians 4 and in verse 30... There Paul writes, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul says, you can grieve the Spirit. I don't recommend it, but Paul says you can grieve the Spirit. Not only can you grieve the Spirit, but I would show you as well 
that you can also insult the Spirit. Look in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Hebrew writer says this in verse 29. In Hebrews 10 verse 29, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged, some translations say, has insulted the Spirit of grace. Outraging the Spirit. Insulting the Spirit by living in a wrong kind of way. And one of the ways that you can do that to the Spirit is found in Acts chapter 5. In Acts 5, here's a living, breathing example of someone insulting and outraging the Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I want you to notice, you know what they did. Peter then confronts them about the sin that they have committed. Look at what Peter asks Ananias. In Acts chapter 5 and in verse 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You can lie to the Holy Spirit. And I think if Ananias were still on earth, he would tell us, don't do that. It won't turn out well. I would tell you also, the Holy Spirit, He can be resisted. If you're still here in Acts, just flip over a page or two. Look in Acts chapter 7. At the end of Stephen's great sermon that he preaches and he addresses those Jews that were in that audience, he says to them in verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Let me put one more in this connection. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 19, Paul writes there very simply... Do not quench the Spirit. That is, do not extinguish the influence of the Spirit in your life. Don't do that. Now, all of that is really just the tip of the iceberg here. But this has to be, this must be our first stop when we talk about the Holy Spirit of God. Because what we need to understand is that the Holy Spirit, He is not the Bible's equivalent of the force from Star Wars. That's not what the Holy Spirit is. The Bible does not describe the Spirit as some mystical energy that just floats around in the sky or in the universe. And I will remind you that God is free to say about Himself whatever He chooses. And God is able to reveal Himself with any kind of metaphor that He so chooses. And when God talks about the Holy Spirit, He doesn't talk in those kinds of metaphors. And that's because the Holy Spirit is a person. Not an it. He has personality. He has personhood. We've seen that through these passages. And this is vitally important for us. Because as long as we view the Spirit as some impersonal it, an impersonal thing, then we're never going to be comfortable. We're never going to appreciate. And we're never going to love the Spirit of God as we really should. In fact, can I be even more specific about this first point? The Holy Spirit, He is a person. More specifically, He is a divine person. You stop and think about the other members of the Godhead. Think about Jesus. Do you view Jesus as an it? Just some kind of quasi-being? Of course not. And what about God the Father? Do you view God the Father as some sort of just spooky force in the... No, absolutely not. And that is why when we think about the Spirit... We need to think about the person of the Spirit, that third person of the Godhead, because He is indeed a divine person. 
I would tell you secondly, though, that even though the Holy Spirit is a person, He is not the person that is tasked with providing you a spiritual high. Have you ever watched the local news? And maybe as they're about to pitch over to the weatherman, and the weatherman's going to do his segment, and he's going to give the forecast for the week. The lead anchor, maybe you'll say something kind of snarky. They'll say something like, well, Bill... It sure has been cold lately. When are you going to give us some warm weather? I hear the newscasters say that from time to time. As if Bill Mack has the power and the control to change and alter the weather. He has some kind of specific control over these crazy Kentucky temperatures. Bill Mack's just going to take care of that. Absolutely not. But you know what? I am afraid sometimes that the Holy Spirit is expected, at least in people's minds, to operate in that very same kind of way. Because as if the Holy Spirit doesn't already have enough to do, people today want to put the Holy Spirit of God in charge of their personal happiness and joy as a Christian. You just stop and think about it. How many people throughout your lifetime have you heard say, Oh, I've got the Spirit. I want to be Spirit-led. I want to be Spirit-filled. When you hear that from your religious friends and your religious neighbors, what do they mean by that? Usually, what do they mean by that when they say, oh, I've got the Spirit? Usually what they're referring to is having some spiritual high. Being really emotional. Being really just fired up. Maybe in their worship service they're waving their hands and they're kind of almost in this trance, if you will where you don't even have control over your faculties because the Spirit's got control of me. I've got the Spirit. There are even some churches that they will put on their sign out front, Spirit-filled worship. And that is to signal to you that charismatic, high-energy, frenzied, emotional worship it's going to be going on in this place. Can I ask you, where is that in the Bible? Where does the Bible teach that that is the job of the Spirit? To get everybody just all worked up and in a frenzy emotionally, bring them to a big spiritual high. Where's that in the Bible? You won't find that in the Bible. Now, there are people in the Bible who are Spirit-filled. Make no mistake about that. David is Spirit-filled. By the direction of the Holy Spirit, David wrote a whole bunch of the Psalms. And yet, that very same Spirit-filled man is the one who wrote the words in Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I read those verses of David, I read those words of him, and you know what? That doesn't sound like somebody who's on a big spiritual high. Or what about Paul in the New Testament? Was Paul spirit-filled? Absolutely Paul was spirit-filled. Because under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament including many of those passages that we read just a few moments ago. And yet, that same spirit man, same spirit-filled individual, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, that there was a moment in his life when he despaired even of life itself. Thought they had the sentence of death on them. Where's the high there, Paul? Thought you were spirit-filled. Why aren't you on a big high, buddy? Where's the glow that comes with being filled with the Spirit? Or what about a church? What about a spirit-filled church? You can find a spirit-filled church in the Bible. Read the letters to the Corinthians. The church at Corinth was a spirit-filled church. A literally spirit 
Spirit-filled church. They had spiritual gifts. The word gifts in our Bible, the for spiritual gifts, that word there is the Greek word charis or charisma, where we get our word charismatic. That church in Corinth had real charis. They had real gifts of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues, prophecy, healing, all sorts of things. And yet, that same Spirit-filled church, they are everything but what I would call a spiritual high. They had problems. They had division and fussing and fighting. People bringing lawsuits against one another. Immorality, irreverent worship going on there. Corinth might have had all kinds of excitement and frenzy going on on the outside. But Paul said to them, I do not commend you. You need to stop doing that. God's not pleased with what you're doing there. So let's just get it straight. There is no place in the Bible that says or promises that if you have the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, if you're filled with the Spirit, if you're led by the Spirit, then what that means is that means you're going to glow in the dark. Or you're going to just smile all the time and be happy all the time? No passage says that if you're filled with the Spirit, then that means you're never ever going to struggle or be tempted. And that you'll just always be up, up, up all of the time. That's not in the Bible. You know, we look at our Pentecostal friends and we see that glowy up, up, up thing going on over there. And we figure that as long as we don't talk about the Holy Spirit, then maybe people will notice that we're not like them. I hope everybody notices that we're not like them. Because what they're doing is not what the Spirit does. That's not the job of the Holy Spirit. That's not what it means to truly be Spirit-filled. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. Instead, if we're going to get comfortable with the Holy Spirit, that means we need to get comfortable with the fact that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit works primarily through the Scriptures. Primarily, He works through the Word of God. The primary instrument of the Holy Spirit, the primary tool, if you will, is the Bible. Let me connect a couple of verses for you that I often show people when I'm having discussion about the Holy Spirit. Look in Ephesians 5. I'll give you two verses here. It would be well worth you making this same connection as well. In Ephesians 5, this is in some ways this kind of a familiar passage for us. Notice with me in verse 18. In Ephesians 5 and in verse 18, Paul says there, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. Don't be filled with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. How so, Paul? Verse 19, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hold that thought and turn with me now to Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, this is a very similar passage. In fact, it's nearly identical in its wording with one major and notable exception. In Colossians chapter 3, look in verse 16. In Colossians 3 and in verse 16, there Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Maybe another way we might say that. Be filled with the Word of Christ, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Now, the similarity in both of those passages is that both of them talk about singing to the Lord and singing to one another and encouraging one another in song. 
But did you notice that the one key difference was that leading phrase? In Ephesians 5, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Then in Colossians 3, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you. Let the Word of Christ fill you up. Now, even though those are two different phrases, I'm going to submit to you this morning that it's talking about the same thing. Because whenever the Word is dwelling in us richly, then we are being filled with the Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean that the Word and the Spirit are the same thing. That the Spirit is the Word. Absolutely not. But it does mean that the Spirit is using God's Word, the Scriptures, to exercise control in our lives and to help build relationship with the Lord. Because that is what the Lord wants, isn't it? So God wants to be in relationship with His creation. And that relationship is forged as we hear, as we study, as we listen to the Word of God. Somebody says, you want to be filled with the Spirit? Absolutely I want to be filled with the Spirit. Then what we need to do is we need to stop looking for some spiritual high as being evidence of being filled with the Spirit. And instead we need to be filling our minds and our hearts with the Word of God. And I hope that that does not surprise you to hear me say that. Because biblically, God has always used His Word. That that is the primary means by which God makes His will known to us. Go all the way back to the very beginning of time in Genesis chapter 2. God spoke to those people in the garden. Don't eat of that tree. Fast forward to Mount Sinai. What God give Moses? He gave him the Ten Commandments. The remainder of the Old Testament is filled with words from prophets. Where do those words come from? They were the words of God, the very message of God, the instructions of God. The point here is that God uses words to communicate His will. In fact, look in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, look at how the Hebrew writer begins this epistle. In Hebrews chapter 1 and in verse 1. Hebrews 1 verse 1, long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God's fullest and final revelation, it comes through His Son, through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the culmination of God's Word to humankind. And so Jesus commits that Word to His special servants, the apostles, and to other inspired men who then wrote those words down, wrote them on parchment or on papyrus or whatever they wrote on. And those things were then handed down so that we could have today the Word of God. So that we could then be filled with the Spirit by living out the Word of God. And by the way, who was it that delivered and protected that Word from Jesus to those inspired men? Who was it that transported that Word? Well, that would be the Holy Spirit. Look in John 14. In John 14, Jesus tells His apostles, this is exactly what the Holy Spirit would do for them. In John 14, look in verse 26. In John 14 and in verse 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
The Holy Spirit labored diligently during the time of the first century in particular to provide the apostles with those documents that we now know as the New Testament. God's final word for human time. And I would suggest to you that the Holy Spirit's work through the Scriptures, it was not just limited to that little window of time in the first century. I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the Holy Spirit's work through the Scriptures, it's ongoing. It continues even to this day. Look, for example, there in John 16. Look, look in verse 18, or in verse 8. Turn the page in John 16 and in verse 8. Jesus says that when He comes, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And then he goes on to say in verse 13 that we read earlier, when the Spirit of truth comes, He's going to guide you into all the truth. How does the Holy Spirit convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment? Does He do that through feelings? Does He convict the world through impressions? Does He convict the world through those things, through you know, nudges? Is that how the Holy Spirit operates? Through very subjective means and mechanisms? No. Jesus says He's going to do that through the truth. Through the Word. In fact, I would add to all of this, Ephesians 6 verse 17, you know that verse. That's the verse that describes the armor of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is what? It is the Word of God. There can be no doubt that there is a direct correlation between the Holy Spirit and that book that you're holding in your laps right now. You are holding the primary tool of the Holy Spirit. Now that's certainly not to suggest, and I want you to hear me well, that is not to suggest that this is the only work of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to be accused this morning of limiting the Holy Spirit in some way. But I believe if you survey the Bible, it is clear that the Spirit's M.O., His method of operation, it's primarily through the Scriptures. Which maybe, very practically, begs the question of us, how much time are you spending in the Scriptures? You know, we want to be filled with the Spirit. We say that. Maybe we even have songs that talk about that and profess that. We want to be filled with the Spirit. We want to live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit, as Paul talks about in Galatians 5.25. Well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that if we just regularly neglect the very mechanism, the very vehicle by which the Spirit operates in our lives? I realize it takes time and it takes energy and it takes effort to read the Bible, to study the Bible, to meditate and to think upon it and then to take it deeply into our hearts. But I'm going to tell you, it is only when we are willing to do that work that we can truly say that we are being led by the Spirit And that we are filled with the Spirit. Which leads me now to probably the most important thing that I could say this morning that will help all of us to get more comfortable with the Holy Spirit. And that is, we need to accept the reality that we are never going to understand everything about the Holy Spirit. We're just not going to comprehend everything that there is to know about what the Spirit is doing, And all of the layers and all of the complexities of that. You know, there's a pretty good chance throughout the course of this lesson, or maybe as I was just introducing this sermon this morning, that somebody was hoping I was going to shed some light 
on some of those oft-asked questions that people have about the Holy Spirit. Somebody would probably ask, well, Josh, what about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? How exactly does that work? I need you to explain that to me so I can get comfortable with the Spirit. Or what does it mean there in Ephesians? We read that earlier in Ephesians chapter 4 about being sealed by the Spirit. What does that mean? How does that happen? What's going on there? Or maybe what about in Romans chapter 8 when it talks there about the Spirit interceding for us? Hey, how does the Spirit make intercession for us? Well, you know, I could stand up here this morning and I could postulate and I could hypothesize about all those things. But I'm really not sure that I understand all of the dimensions of those activities of the Holy Spirit. I have some ideas, but I really don't think I can stand up here and give you 100% concrete, this is the way it is and it can't be any other way, answers to those questions. And I realize that that bothers people sometimes. Oh my! The Spirit's out there sealing. The Spirit's out there indwelling. The Spirit's out there interceding for people. And we don't understand about all that. What are we going to do? Listen, there's lots of things about God that we do not understand. There's lots of things about God the Father and God the Son that I will freely admit that I do not understand. You think about God the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God uses angels to serve as ministering spirits on our behalf. Can you explain everything about how God uses angels in your life and my life? I can't either. But you know what? I sure am glad that He does. You see, the fact that I don't understand everything about what the Father is doing and how He's doing that doesn't prevent me at all from loving the Father, appreciating the Father, worshiping the Father, and being in relationship with the Father. Or what about the Son? Do you know everything and understand everything about Jesus Christ? Philippians 2, for example, teaches that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Can you explain that? I can't either. But that doesn't hinder me in the slightest from loving and serving and obeying and appreciating and being in relationship with Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is, God is way too big for us to ever understand everything about Him with our little, bitty, teeny, tiny, finite human minds. We're not ever going to get to a point where we can put God in a box and we're going to seal it up with some duct tape and we're going to put it on the shelf and say, got that taken care of. I've got God all figured out now. No. We're never going to reach that point. And what that means is, is that means that even though I don't understand everything about how the Holy Spirit maybe uses His Word in people's lives, or how exactly the Spirit fills a person's life, or how the Spirit goes about interceding for us, or how exactly and what all the mechanics are of the Spirit sealing us. You know what? That's okay. That's okay. I'm content to just let God be God. I think I heard a good sermon this past week on that very subject. Now that doesn't mean that we're going to just lapse into erroneous thinking. We covered some of that in point number two, didn't we? Nor does that mean that we're just going to stop growing. We just kind of shut our Bibles. Well, since I can't understand everything about God, no sense in reading and studying the Bible. No. We're going to continue to try to grow and understand, come to a better understanding of the Spirit and what He does and what He's all about. But you know what? 
even with an incomplete and imperfect knowledge, I can still love and appreciate and respect and honor and be in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And maybe one of these days, with some growth and some maturity, maybe one of these days, the light bulb will come on about the Spirit sealing us. Oh, okay, I understand that now. And maybe someday, bing, the light bulb will go on, and I'll understand about the Holy Spirit interceding on my behalf. But you know what? Even if that day never comes, I'm not going to allow my finite understanding to stand in the way of me talking about or being comfortable with or glorifying the Holy Spirit of God. And in fact, we have a song in our books that helps us to do just that. It is that song that we began singing just a few moments ago, number 505, Glorify Thy Name. And just as we did in those first two verses of that song, we praised God the Father. We praised God the Son. We glorified their names. Let's take advantage of this opportunity right now to praise and adore God the Spirit and glorify His name. Brother Mitchell, would you lead us in that song? Thank you, brother. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing the song that's been selected as an invitation song, number 269, Nothing But the Blood. And we're going to sing that inviting you to follow the leading of the Spirit. I recognize that's not the normal vernacular that we sometimes use when we extend the invitation, but that is what we're inviting you to do, to follow the leading of the Spirit. And if you've paid attention at all this morning, then you know I'm not talking about following some emotion or some feeling or some warm spot that you have in your heart right now. No, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about the teaching of the Scriptures. That Jesus died for your sins. That He was buried. That He rose again the third day and He is declared to be the Son of God with power. The Scriptures teach that you need to believe that. That you need to confess Jesus as God's Son. That you need to repent and turn from sin and you need to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins. That is what the Spirit has revealed through the Word that a person needs to do to be saved. And if you have been convicted this morning in such a way that you want to act upon those blessed words, then that opportunity is yours right now. Brother or sister, let me extend an invitation to you as well. It may very well be that that leading of the Spirit, allowing the controlling influence of the Spirit and His Word in your life, it may be that that has diminished. 
In fact, it may even be that that's just not even an influence in your life at all. We're encouraging you to repent. That's what the Bible says that you need to do. You need to pray God. You need to seek His forgiveness. If we as your brothers and sisters can encourage you and help you to be more faithful to Him, then we're saying ready to do that as well. Whatever your need may be, if you're subject to the invitation, take advantage of this moment while we stand and while we sing.